Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for December 1st, 2017. I'm your host, Brian Cardow, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient appellate and constitutional law questions. This week, in a closely watched intellectual property case with separation of power undertones, one that elicited nearly 60 amicus filings, the U.S. Supreme Court heard argument as to the constitutionality of a particular adjudicative process run by the Patent and Trademark Office called Interparties Review, through which one party may challenge the validity of another party's patent in a trial-like procedure, but without the time and expense of federal litigation. Proponents of the streamlined process say it discourages nuisance patent lawsuits, spurs innovation, and makes the patent administration process overall much more efficient. But challengers of the procedure, like the petitioner before the court this week, contend it wasn't constitutional for Congress to outsource to an Article I arbiter the sort of adversarial patent disputes that so nearly resemble those traditionally heard by federal courts and juries. Ben Davidson, an intellectual property law expert at the Davidson Law Group here in Los Angeles, will join us to discuss the Interparties Review System, the competing arguments over its constitutionality, and why he thinks the court is likely to uphold the regime. But before we hear from Ben, let's get to our opening briefs. We'd be remiss to begin an appellate law-focused podcast this week without noting the passing the longtime liberal lion or Ninth Circuit, Judge Harry Pregerson, 36-year stalwart of the circuit's bench and Purple Heart decorated veteran of the Second World War, entered the Battle of Okinawa. As detailed very eloquently by Nick Sonnenberg in our newspaper's pages this week, the genial Pregerson fought for his progressive values on the bench and within the greater Los Angeles community, where he regularly dedicated himself to public service projects, many aimed at helping the homeless and veterans. If you're hearing this podcast the day it airs, Friday, December 1st, know that a public memorial service for Judge Pregerson is being held at 1 p.m. today at the Shrine Auditorium near USC's campus. The Ninth Circuit rendered a First Amendment decision this week, one that after nearly a decade of litigation upholds a Butte County Jail rule preventing unsolicited commercial mail from being received by inmates of the facility. A publisher of a magazine aimed at inmates and meant to educate them as to how to navigate the criminal justice system sued the jail in 2008 over the policy, arguing it violated the publisher's First Amendment rights. After making its way up on appellate review in 2011, where a summary judgment motion in favor of the county was overturned, further factual development led the panel this week to deem sufficient the justification supporting the rule, preventing the misuse of unsolicited papers to lock vents, clock toilets, and the like, and uphold the ban. In the California Supreme Court this week, a related pair of labor law rulings favored farm workers in their dispute against Garawan Farming, one of the country's biggest fruit producers. In one, the court upheld against an abandonment defense, a long-standing state rule, that a farm workers' union remains certified until its membership decertifies it, even where collective bargaining talks are discontinued for, as here, almost 20 years. In the other case, the court reversed the 5th District Court of Appeal and upheld against constitutional challenges a mandatory mediation process that can be invoked against agricultural employers or union groups that attempt to stall collective negotiations. Mediators in the process with Agricultural Labor Relations Board approval can even impose a contract on the bargaining parties. Garawan's attorneys, as reported in our newspaper by James Getz, fully intend to petition the U.S. Supreme Court for certiorari, believing the mediation law violates due process and equal protection principles and is furthermore an improper delegation of legislative authority. In the U.S. Supreme Court this week, the justices entertained arguments Monday as to another case where challengers contend that Congress unconstitutionally delegated judicial authority to the Patent and Trademark Office, when in 2012 it empowered the office and its Patent and Trial Appeals Board to conduct quasi-trials over patent validity in a process called Interparties Review. Ben Davidson is an intellectual property practitioner with the Davidson Law Group and is quite familiar with the Interparties Review. Joins us now, Ben. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Okay, so uh, this week, the, the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral argument in Oil States Energy Service versus Greens Energy Group at issue uh, an administrative adjudicative procedure, the interparty review, by way of which one party may, may challenge the, the patent of another party uh, at the, the Patent and Trademark Office, which then can, can decide if it, it should invalidate 
the uh, the challenged patent with with some oversight by the the federal circuit where appeals can be sought. Um, this is a fairly new process, as I understand, enacted in 2012 as part of the America Invents Act. Maybe just to start, could you explain how the process uh, works, the inter-party review process? Sure. So the inter-parties reviews were instituted in 2012. They were uh, put in place by the 2011 passage of the America Invents Act, the AIA, uh, which dealt with a number of uh, problems that had been complained about for, for many years, one of which, really the, the, the main one, being uh, what people called patent troll litigation or um, non-practicing entity litigation, where uh, companies assert patents to seek licenses or settlements uh, not to protect inventions that they're actually selling, uh, but to use them as leverage for getting um, getting payment on the on the value of the patents, and the AIA um, dealt with that by allowing people who are sued for infringement or threatened with suit for infringement, or actually anyone, to instead of having to challenge a patent in litigation, um, go back to the patent office in a litigation-like setting, and within a year get a decision on whether the patent was valid or invalid. And uh, it has been a remarkably successful change to the to the patent system in in deterring a lot of nuisance patent troll litigation. And, uh, you know, and on the other hand, uh, many patents do survive IPRs if they were validly issued. And uh, you know, some would say it strengthens the patent system because you have a much more reliable determination early on about whether the patent is valid or invalid. But that's really why AIAs were motivated in large part by the, and especially the, the, the amalgamation of a lot of non-practice entity litigation in certain courts where the costs of discovery would just make it uh, insane for someone to litigate the case rather than pay a nuisance value settlement, even if the patent is invalid. I mean, it happened, you know, pretty, pretty routinely that you thought, you know, we have great arguments for why the patent is invalid. And we would win those arguments, but it would take you a year and a half um, and hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not, you know, well over a million dollars. As, a, as an IP attorney, did you did you find yourself in situations like that where there is a, a nuisance suit brought that it, it seemed clear enough um, could be successfully defended, but that a party might incentivize hey, it's not it's just not worth the, the money and the time, so we'll go ahead and offer a quick settlement to, to one of those nuisance plaintiffs? Absolutely. And, and in fact, it still happens. It's just that the, the price of the nuisance settlement is now much lower. It, it, it's instead of being based on the cost of litigation in federal district court, it's based on the cost of an inter-parties review, uh, which is still not, you know, it's not cheap. You still have to pay the patent office about $25,000 in fees, just, just the patent office, and you have to pay a lawyer and typically an expert to prepare your petition and to put forward evidence of invalidity. But but it does really help settle cases when you can demonstrate to the patent owner that um, you will invalidate the patent and and that you're you'd rather pay to do that than to pay a settlement. Um, but but you know this this is not nothing really new it, and it's not not necessarily unique to patent law. And it's not to say that, you know, all patents or all patent owners are acting badly to, to seek nuisance settlements. But I've, I, I, I have had cases uh, before the, the IPR regime where a, a patent owner would actually publish his um, methodology for seeking settlements. And it was geared to the, the phase of litigation at which you settled, uh, what part, which part of discovery, which part of Markman, you know, Markman hearing expert discovery, and so IPRs have taken the wind out of that kind of practice largely. Till now, we've been discussing essentially kind of two alternatives you know, in, in the context of patents being challenged, either um, suits in federal court or um, within the, the relatively new inter-party review regime. Um, but, but before this IPR regime was put in place, was there any sort of administrative adjudicative process through which uh, folks could, could challenge patents. I have noticed in some of the amicus filings that before IPR, there was just a, 
a patent reexamination process, which was somewhat similar to this. Is the alternative here really just between IPR and, and federal court? Was there something else? Right, right. Absolutely. No, there were other procedures for the patent office to correct its own mistakes. Uh, and and uh, the reexamination procedure was the main one. It started in 1980. It was called, uh, well, in 1980, they had uh, what was called an ex-party reexam. Ex-party reexams um, would be initiated by the request of a, well, it could be anyone, but typically it was a third party who, who might have a problem with the patent, could be somebody accused of infringement, but it would be ex parte uh, between the patent office and the patent owner. There would be no ability for the accused infringer or third party to participate in those proceedings. So they had limited benefit, actually, uh, in a sense, because you might not want, if you're the challenger, you may not want the patent office to try to correct its mistake by considering new evidence, new prior art that they didn't consider the first time. If you're worried that they're going to do a poor job again and issue an invalid patent again, uh, because it has the effect of sort of whitewashing the, uh, the, the best evidence that you've found. And so uh, in reaction to that, in, in 1999, Congress uh, allowed through statute a new procedure called inter-parties re-examinations. And inter-parties re-examinations uh, actually allowed the, the challenger to comment on what the patent office was doing when it was doing it. So you weren't really litigating in the sense uh, with the other side, but you had, you had a right to be heard on the patent office's uh, determination and to appeal a negative determination. The problem with those uh, proceedings was they were taking three, sometimes four, five years. And so um, they were not as effective in, in uh, invalidating an invalid patent or getting a decision. And sometimes, or many times, district courts would say, well, I, I'm not going to put this case on hold for three, four, five years until the patent office makes a decision, we're going to have our trial, and then you can you can continue with your reexamination as well. And the, the the most famous example of that was I don't know if you remember the BlackBerry uh, case involving mm -hmm. uh, RIM. Uh, they got hit with an incredible uh, judgment of uh, infringement, and uh, and the patent office determined too late to help them that the patent was invalid. And, and so, so that's one of the, the, the downfalls of inter-parties reviews. There were other, you know, his, historical ways of, of correcting errors in the patent office, uh, something called a re, reissue application. For example, if you didn't claim as much as you, you should have or could have claimed in terms of the scope of your invention, that's, that's, that's been around as long as the patent office has been around, or actually before. And certain other corrections, uh, could be made. Um, as a matter of course, by a certificate of correction, uh, since Thomas Edison's time, for example, a typo in the claims, uh, and and you know not to <laughs> this is probably only interesting to patent lawyers, frankly, but you know the, the patent lawyers will 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 know another procedure that was available ha had been for 150 years uh, called interferences and interferences, uh, which are now replaced by the AIA through other proceedings. Interferences were basically trials between two people who both claimed the same invention. One of them maybe got the patent issued, and the other one had just filed a patent application, and they both would argue that they were the original inventors. And back then, before the American Invents Act, um, the patent office would give a patent to the original inventor, the first in time, not the first person to file a patent application. And so interferences were, were not really that different from IPRs in the sense that it was a full trial between parties to prove which one of them should have gotten the patent. It's fair to say the, the Patent Office and the Patent uh, Trial and Appeals Board is not, not unfamiliar to adjudicating disputes between um, different different parties in this context. Uh, maybe just one more on this prior procedures. What what exactly would the mechanism be or what, what was the mechanism to make uh, inter-party review much more expedient than the, the preceding uh, inter-party uh, re-examination re you mentioned? Uh, well, the, one thing is, by statute, Congress said 
you must reach a decision within one year from the petition being filed. Okay. So it's statutory. That And that required the patent office to hire patent um, judges. Um, and th- an enormous amount of resources went into that. There are now over 200 PTAB judges. And these are um, mostly former patent litigators who have given up, many of them, very successful careers in patent law to go and get these these, these jobs that don't pay nearly as much, uh, but they have the expertise to really understand patent claim construction and validity issues. Uh, many of them are former examiners, and uh, uh, that's the thing, is, is, is by law they have to make a decision within a year. They're, they're also, I mean, it's it's much more participatory um, and more more litigation like, which which really has the challenger doing the work, and and that's really one of the complaints that's raised by oil states in this in its petition. It's less the patent office doing the work of examination and more, much more the challenger doing the the work of litigating to prove that the claims are invalid. In terms of the the intended benefits of that that act, the American Invents Act, you said that um, between spurring innovation and creating some um, efficiency within the the patent review process, it seemed pretty successful in achieving both of those goals. Uh, correct. Well, um, I, I don't know that everyone actually. I know no, that everyone would not agree that that the goals of the act have been have been met. I mean, in terms of spurring innovation, and you know, patent owners who've had their patents invalidated would say do say this is killing uh, the incentives for innovation because because it, it's deteriorating the value of patents and, and investors are not um, going to invest and are not investing as much in technology because they don't know whether the patents are, are that, that they're going to be getting on their technology are going to be upheld. And, and, and so, you know, in a sense, that goal of, of spurring Innovation is not, is, you know, many would say it's not met by the by the AIA. But but the goal of decreasing the amount of patent litigation, especially NPE litigation, absolutely has been has been met. You know, and and this again, this may this this is good or bad depending on on wh- you know whose problem you care about the most. You know, a patent attorney who normally have been willing to invest a year, year and a half of his life in litigating a patent and paying all the costs. Of litigation for a, for a small inventor, for you know an individual or a small company with patents, now is looking at having to do that, but also having to go through an interparties proceeding for a year and 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 spending the money to do that, and it takes a lot of the incentive out for the patent attorney to invest in a contingency litigation, you know, which in many ways for for small inventors. And small, you know, small patent owning companies is the only chance they'll have to enforce their patents. So, you know, it's sort of the flip side of what people call patent trolls. I mean, one man's patent trolls another man's inventor. And, and I think it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a function of the politics of, of how people are viewing patent litigation that, that, that there's this sharp divide over, you know, whether people should be given their day in court, literally given their day in court, or whether the patent office should take over the function of deciding whether the patent was valid. And I mean, to give you some examples, you know, um, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Flash of Genius about the, uh, the, the inventor who sued Ford Motor Company for the alternating windshield wiper patent. Mm-hmm. And he, yeah, yeah. he fought for years and years in court, and at some point he ran out of money to pay lawyers, so he litigated the case himself, you know, in front of a jury, and ultimately was able to get, I believe, a settlement. Um, but uh, back in the day, people thought of inventors as the good guy. And unfortunately, what happened is because of a lot of abuse of the system leading up to the AIA, there was a political momentum to, 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 to do something about the, the litigation abuse. So in, um, in the defense of the, the small in, inventor, is there not uh, enough leverage that they, they can use with this inter-party Review process. Uh, you know, do, do big companies have a significant advantage when it comes to to this procedure, or and would would it not be still possible for inventors with a rightful claim to prevail? That's a very good question. I think interparties reviews are fair or unfair, depending on whether 
your your patent owner or a defendant. Patent owners think it's unfair because it changes the rules of uh, how validity is decided. You know, it, it, it used to be that if you're a patent owner, you got a patent issued with a gold seal, you knew you could take that to a jury, and a jury would decide whether it was valid. And and it, you know, it comes with a statutory presumption of validity uh, in litigation, um, and uh, and also comes with the, the sort of the uh, Understanding that jurors have that an expert, you know, patent examiner has already decided this invention deserves a patent. Um, so it, 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 it was a valuable piece of property, like a land grant. You know, that's the way juries would look at it. Uh, and, and so to take that patent and now throw it into the IPR where there's no presumption of validity, uh, where there's no jury, where there's an expert, a former patent litigator, uh, typically, who decides whether the claim should have been granted in the first place. Uh, and then not only that, but on, in the patent, in the inter-parties review, you have a different standard of interpreting the claims. You don't interpret them the same as a judge would have to do. Um, you're required to give them the broadest reasonable interpretation, meaning you, you interpret the claims more broadly in, in the patent office proceeding than you would in court. By interpreting them more broadly to cover more things, it's easier to invalidate them. So patent owners say that's a very unfair system because it, it leads, it's predetermined to lead to a result of, of killing patents. Um, and and um, on the other hand, the uh, companies and you know parties sued for patent infringement uh, don't see the unfairness because they because they say, I mean, which is common sense. Juries really aren't qualified to to decide these issues. I mean, it's it's sort of the it's sort of an elephant in the room, um, especially when you're talking about pharmaceutical patents or just you know computer science and it's so many different uh, different things that are difficult for even judges to understand. You know, for even the lawyers to really wrap their their minds around you know using experts, it's. It's a little farcical many times that you can expect a juror in a limited amount of time to understand the technology enough to understand whether it was worthy of a patent. And, you know, actually the really good patent lawyers who tried cases understood that the juries really don't understand these issues and and they would level with them and say, you're going to understand as much as you need to understand to know whether the patent office made a mistake. So, um, and, you know, so going, coming back to the question, it, it, is, is, is the IPR fair or unfair? You know, it's both fair and unfair. It's, you know, it's more fair now to people who, who had to go through the gauntlet of trying to invalidate a patent in front of a group of, of jurors who don't have the level of education that you'd really need to have to understand the issues. Um, but it's, it's, it's also unfair to people who, who, who have got patents with the expectation that it's going to carry with it this great presumption of validity and, um, and likely withstand the challenge so that they, you know, they would invest, you know, potentially invest in, in creating a company around the technology. Starting to, to dig in a bit to the specific case here, I think the underlying facts are summed up simply enough. This is a challenge over, I think, a natural gas fracking-related patent. Is that right? And, and so one of the parties did successfully avail itself of the, the IPR process to invalidate uh, oil states energies patent, right? That's right. It was, it was a mechanism, a patent on a mechanism for protecting the, the fracking equipment, the wellheads of the fracking equipment, from the high pressure fluids that are very corrosive uh, that are used for the fracking, you want to make sure that you don't damage your equipment. So they have a mechanism to cover and protect it. And um, and this this was this was a patent on a, an improvement on, on one of these mechanisms. But it was uh, it was in litigation uh, in the in the Eastern District of Texas. And about a year into the litigation, or just just less than a year, because that's the deadline for it, uh, the um, the defendant Greens Energy filed an inter-parties review, an IPR, and the Patent and Trademark Office, the PTAB, um, found the patent was invalid based on a piece of prior art that the Patent Office had not considered, had not found, 
and that had not been cited to the patent office by oil states, the patent owner, even though it was, it was prior art by the same inventor uh, whose patent oil states were suing on. And so um, maybe predictably, the, the PTAB invalidated the patent uh, and uh, oil states um, maintained its appeal past the federal circuit into the Supreme Court. You're saying the an entire process by which that patent was validated was, was uh, in contravention of both the Constitution's third article and and uh, the Seventh Amendment, right? Correct. Right. right. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to to back up just for a second. Um, you know, when this uh, statute was enacted in two thousand and twelve, it seemed like a a fairly natural evolution of patent law to folks in the IP context. That it seemed like the sort of thing that would in pretty short order, wind its way up to the Supreme Court for uh, for debate as to whether it was a permissible sort of thing. You know, I I think we all thought it was a, it was a it was a big deal. There might have been some, and I'm sure there was some commentary on how could this be constitutional. I mean, I remember we always assumed as patent lawyers that juries got to decide these things. Uh, and I, in fact, I remember I wrote my law review note on on how how could you possibly take decisions away from a jury, you know, on, on patent validity. But, um, but I don't think that we, that, that anyone really expected the regime to be challenged, you know, and, and the Supreme Court to take up cert on the issue because there's been sort of this gradual realism that, you know what, certain decisions really shouldn't be made by juries when they evolve patents. I mean, you know, there was a decision in 1990, uh, called Markman that took claim construction away from juries. You know, what does the patent cover? Uh, we've always had this history of re-examinations. It's just that they weren't, they weren't effective enough. The inter-parties re-examinations weren't effective enough. So, so it was, uh, it was not that surprising that you would have a better system, a faster system. Um, and, and, and actually, I, you know, even though, it, of course, every Supreme Court case is very important, you know, a lot of patent lawyers didn't really tune into this case very much because it seemed so incredibly unlikely that something as as um, successful as P- as as the PTAB and interparties reviews um, would be just completely dismantled based on an argument that it violates Article Three or the Seventh Amendment. But I think you know after the hearing, um, people started paying a little bit more more attention, especially because. One of the justices is new, Justice Gorsuch, and there's there's, a, there, there's really a, a second look at whether too much is being taken away from the courts. So this case elicited you know, a, a tremendously large number of briefs, so many parties paying attention. Uh, one kind of interesting thing I noticed from the filings is that there are um, you know, major companies that I presume are, are very uh, keen on the robust enforcement of of patents, um, sort of on both sides of the question. I think Apple uh, filed an amicus brief in support of IPR. There's some other very large companies like big pharmaceutical companies that came down on, on the other side. I'd be curious if you have a sense as to you know why large companies like that might have, have different views on um, on the procedure. Right. Well, that, that's, that's been a, a, a great divide among the Fortune 500 companies on whether they like patents or they don't like patents. Um, so companies like Apple and Google, uh, they, they get a lot of patents, but they actually would be happy if there were no patents. Or they might be, you know, especially Google. They are market leaders because they have market power and they're, they're the first mover many times in getting a technology out and they don't need patents to succeed, um, or to protect their market share. It's their marketing, it's their, it's their strength and, in technology and innovation that, that does that for them. Pharmaceutical companies, though, need patents. Uh, otherwise, they cannot justify the billions of dollars in research that they undertake in order to, in order to find that one out of maybe a thousand or two thousand, uh, experiments that actually has a result. And so without, without strong enforcement of patents, their business model is really is really hurt, and so that's why you find among the amicus briefs, uh, the Association of Pharmaceutical Manufacturers (Pharma) um, uh, and and some of the pharmaceutical companies, the non-generic pharmaceutical companies, 
siding very much on the side of 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 uh, oil states mm-hmm. and of 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 doing away with the uh, IPRs because they, they they don't want patents to be easily challenged. They don't want the the rules to be changed in terms of whether um, you have a, a, a broader interpretation of the claims in order to be able to invalidate them. And they'd be happy to have juries decide these issues. And they believe, I'm sure they they actually they, you know they do believe that this is a constitutional violation. Um, but but internet sort of the internet uh, association um, electronics companies for for them you know patent litigation has been mostly a nuisance uh and a, a way to stifle innovation you know for for a lot a lot of the, a lot of the patents that were issued on software for example i mean there there are peculiar issues about software patents but but um they wind up stifling um uh innovation in a way and and become a tax on companies that decide to go forward with a product that might inadvertently you know use a number of patents that they were never even aware of um, so th- there's just that that great divide between the pharmaceutical companies that want to get rid of the um, IPRs and companies that sell electronics and consumer goods and retailers that rely on IPRs to be able to quickly defend themselves when they're sued for infringement then maybe uh, digging in into the the party's legal arguments, what are the principal ones that oil state uh, brings to bear here as um, to, to support its claim that this is an unconstitutional uh, overreach by Congress? So there are really uh, two issues. Um, one is oil state says that uh, Article Three has been bypassed by Congress by setting up a specialist executive body. To, to take over matters that were the subject of suits at common law. So you now, instead of having an Article Three judge, you have um, an Article One judge, an employee of the Patent Office who's appointed by the executive and subject to being removed by the executive. Um, and, and the second issue is that um, uh, oil state says this also violates the Seventh Amendment because patent validity is, is a... Is a, is a um, an issue that was at common law decided by juries, and you're taking that away from juries, and it, it violates the Seventh Amendment. Then on on the other side, there seem to be uh, some kind of arguments. One seems to revolve a bit around that point you made um, regarding common law, that in fact, you know, patents are sort of statutory creations. They only exist because Congress created the regime, and so it's less of a common law issue and more of a you know, a statutory sort of thing. What uh, what are the the main legal arguments on on Green's side here? Right. So actually, that that's that's the main the main argument is that a patent is not a private right. It's it's, it's a it's a public right, and as such, Congress is in, is uh, uh, permitted to create a mechanism for the agency that uh, issued that that statutory right to correct errors, um, and. And so um, the difference between uh, a private right and, and a public right allows uh, allows uh, uh, a different uh, approach, and it, it's you, you don't violate Article Three by having that issue decided uh, by a non-Article Three judge. But um, the real argument there is that in in the common law, when the, when the Constitution was written. Um, there's, there's a question whether patents would have been um, adjudicated, or validity of patents would have been adjudicated uh, by juries, and um, and there's, there, there was there was a dispute about that. Uh, there's apparently, the, the, overwhelmingly, it was it, it was an issue that was uh, decided by juries, but there was something called a privy council and other mechanisms for 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 judges to decide. Patent validity and actually for for the for uh, patents to be r- rescinded and it just goes back to the idea that patents were a, a favor bestowed on someone by the king by essentially um, granting them a monopoly um, but but the question whether it's a public right or, or a private right um, really turns on whether you, in, in many of the cases uh, that the Supreme Court's decided. It's decided that you, you you can Congress can set up an administrative body to decide uh, 
an issue that involves a public uh, regulatory scheme where, for example, um, it involves a health and safety issue and OSHA regulation, and it's essential to uh, determination of those issues that the, the regulatory agency be able to uh, interpret its own regulations and apply its own regulations. And so Congress hasn't found, I'm sorry, the, the Supreme Court hasn't found in those cases a violation of Article 3 because you're taking something away from Article 3 courts. But the rebuttal to that argument by all states is that patents are not like something that Congress creates to regulate health and safety or antitrust violations that they have existed at common law, that they they have existed uh, before the Constitution, and that when the Constitution uh, was written, um, they were understood as, as being private rights that would be uh, adjudicated in in, uh, in front of a jury. So uh, whether it's a public right or a private right, I mean, I, I think drives the decision for some of the justices, and especially for Justice Gorsuch. But it, it may not it may not be the driving force for others who, who really looked at it more pragmatically um, in terms of what has historically been done by the Patent Office, and don't you need a mechanism to correct your own mistakes uh, if you're issuing if you're the issuing agency. Uh, don't you need a mechanism to correct uh, your own mistakes? I, I think ultimately, in terms of whether it's a public right or a private right, um, the fact that in the Constitution, um, Congress is vested with the authority of granting patents to inventors for limited times is, is going to support those justices who are going to find that it is a public right. And in fact, I think it was Justice Kennedy who asked, the uh, attorney for oil states, couldn't Congress simply, after issuing a patent, decide that the term of patent should, should be 10 years instead of 20? And the response was that, yes, Congress could do that. And if that's the position, that Congress has the ability to limit the number of years a patent is invalid, even after issuance, then why can't it correct the mistake that it made? It seems seems a reasonable um argument that if you can just limit the, the term, you could also correct the mistake that the issuing agency made. Uh, getting I went to, into the arguments, I, I noted that um, I think Chief Justice Roberts was a little bit more cautious when it came to that sort of discussion among the justices that the Patent Office should have pretty full power to amend or revoke patents that it itself issued, um, saying that I think he compared um, or he analogized to public employment, saying that just because someone uh, is given a, a job with a public agency, they can, at the agency's whim, be summarily um, fired. There must be some sort of uh, due process. So the you know the the power isn't plenary with the the patent office. Uh, could you walk me through kind of his uh, due process concerns there? Right. Yeah, I think his point was that just because patents are issued. Um, by statute and and um, um, Congress is is vested with the right to 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 do that doesn't mean you can you can uh, violate due process in treating them because like 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 employment um, for you know by the by the government. Um, if you're going to take away a property right, you need to do it constitutionally and, and taking um, due process into account. And so, you know, I think his comment was, you, you can't say you have to take the bitter with the sweet. Uh, you can't say we'll give you a patent. You can, you can, um, you know, invest millions of dollars in it, but we'll tell you when we're ready to take it away from you. And we'll, you know, and that, that, that sort of his concern that calling it a public right doesn't comport with due process uh, because 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 essentially um, you know people view it and it is in, in many ways it has the attributes of of, of uh, private property and um, so he 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 was he was concerned about this idea that um, Congress has plenary power to do whatever it wants with patents because. Um, 
they were issued through a statute. Uh, of course, of, of interest is still the relatively new judge, uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch, who voiced it. What seemed to be some some broader concerns, perhaps unsurprisingly, is uh, he's uh, professed to being generally suspicious of the administrative state. So he, he seemed to, to to wonder or worry that just the, the whole um, apparatus of administrative uh, judicative procedures on, on the whole could be on sort of dubious constitutional footing. This you know just one among among many of uh, sorts of uh, the sort of administrative procedures that um, federal agencies, in, in which federal agencies consider disputes before such disputes might reach a, a federal district court and a, and a jury. Um, could you, could you uh, give me a sense of where his head might be at when it comes to, to this question in this context? Well, yeah, I think it's a very interesting point for, because Justice Gorsuch comes from, um, he's, a, he's an originalist and a textualist. In fact, I think he, he spoke at the Federal Society a couple of weeks ago and he got a standing ovation for asking questions about the original intent of the framers uh, because he received some criticism in the, in the press about always always going back to sort of the original intent. And um, before he was confirmed, before he was, he was nominated to the Supreme Court in 2016, uh, there was a case he, where he was the, uh, uh, the author of the majority opinion and also issued a concurrence uh, it's called uh, Gutierrez Brizuela versus Lynch. It's an immigration case where he 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 really um, uh, was concerned about the administrative state where Congress had given the Board of Immigration Appeals power to uh, interpret its own regulations, and the Supreme Court had, had has held that even if that interpretation is contrary to what an Article Three court has said, the administrative agency can essentially trump. Um, the Article Three judge's decision, and Justice Gorsuch, uh, in its concurrence, said, "There's an elephant in the room, which is we have we have allowed this regime or, or this practice of giving power to administrative agencies. Uh, we've given them way too much power, and uh, it's it, it's not consistent with the separation of powers, where judges decide what the law is, and not administrative agencies." And so carried over to, to the issue before the court now in all states, you can see why he's concerned. He's concerned because um, the motivation, the admitted motivation for Congress to institute these IPRs, which are very adjudicative, there are, in fact, a trial between two parties. Motivation was they didn't like the outcomes of the trials. They didn't like the way the Article Three courts were handling the cases with 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 overwhelmingly you know, negative results for for defendants, and so the the uh, the, the, the IPRs uh, were instituted expressly to deal with that problem of you know nuisance litigation because of the presumption of validity and because patents were not getting invalidated quickly enough. So not only they does the patent office create this body with political appointees, essentially given a charge to invalidate patents more quickly um, but but it, it's a body that is not an adjunct as Justice Gorsuch put it an adjunct to an article 3 judge it's not like you have a magistrate judge who is um, performing his duties under the supervision of an article 3 judge it's an independent judge sure you have an appeal uh, at the end of the the, the the trial, which is a judgment, but that's not the same thing really as having um, a magistrate say or an Article One judge um, operating under the supervision of an Article Three judge. In fact, one of the concerns that was expressed um, d- during the hearing by the the uh, um, by the petitioner was that these political appointees, if they're not making a decision, the I, the PTAB judges. Uh, if they're not making a decision that is to the to the liking of the patent office director, the patent office director can add additional judges to a panel to make sure that their decision is consistent with his or her views, which actually happened in two or three cases uh, involving procedures for for interparties reviews, uh, and and that that kind of sort of stacking the deck to get a to get a desired outcome is the antithesis of having these these independent. Article three judges who are appointed for life, 
and uh, are you know independent to make their own decisions. So I think Justice Gorsuch's view and the questions he was asking um, were were driven to to the idea that potentially not only IPRs but maybe even any kind of reexamination uh, of of, a, of an issued patent by the patent office itself might violate Article Three. Um, and there was there was an there was an argument um, by um, by the uh, respondent Greens Energy uh, that said, well, you know, we have a historical practice of having these reexaminations, and uh, the response from Justice Gorsuch was historical. I believe it was Justice Gorsuch, Gorsuch's historical. You know, you mean forty years, but that doesn't really do it for an originalist when you're looking at what was the practice at common law and what was the practice, uh, you know, in, in England uh, when the Constitution was adopted. Okay, um, those, uh, those pretty weighty concerns notwithstanding, the, the prevailing surmise seems to be that the, there are not the votes there to, to strike down the IPR process um, and, and that it will be, that it will survive this case, do you do you share that that view? Do you think the justices will, will rule in favor of the IPR? And I guess, sort of, what opinion do you think we might be seeing a, 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 you know, a broad ruling upholding it, or an opinion that might try to circumscribe it a bit, or uh, sort of a potential middle way? What uh, what might you predict there? So I agree that it's unlikely that uh, from the questions that were asked, it's unlikely that the votes are there to um, strike down the IPR regime. Uh, I mean, certainly Justices Kagan, Ginsburg, Sotomayor, uh, and Breyer were very clearly comfortable with having the Patent Office correct its own mistakes, even if it's with the assistance of somebody who's been sued for infringement, bringing the evidence to light and, and, and you know, trying the case in front of the Patent Office. Um, and um, what the outcome likely is just it, 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 it's an affirmance, but I, I think probably with a dissent from Justice Gorsuch, although it's very hard to read these these tea leaves, but and then potentially uh, one or two of the other uh, conservatives on the on the court. Um, um, but I I I, I think um, uh, it's unlikely that they would they would uh, change the the IPR regime. And one reason is, even though I, I, I understand that ju- justices are, are supposed to look at um, not policy, but the, the, the text of the Constitution and the meaning of the Constitution, and I, and I, I understand Justice Gorsuch's um, explanations in some of his writings for why that is not the job of uh, of, a, of a justice. I think it's very hard for for the majority of the justices to say we're going to undo this system and send patent litigation into a tailspin um, the, because the impact of that would be would would be would be um, felt um, by all industries and you know while it, w- it would be welcome for you know pharmaceutical companies and and you know and for patent owners and and and, and companies that want to pursue their patent rights it, it would it would really restart a lot of the the patent troll litigation that's especially difficult not only for bigger companies like Google and Apple who can handle themselves but for mid-size and startup companies that would face patent litigation and really never get off the ground and I think people I think justices are, are mindful of those things and and if there's a way to find that IPR is really not that different from reexaminations which I think there is uh, they're likely to affirm the federal circuit Sure. Yeah, that that was going to be my last question. Is just how how disruptive the, the reversal of I, the IPR process could be to the the IP practitioners in context. Um, sounds like you say uh, pretty disruptive, and you you think that that is the sort of thing that that can persuade or convince or um, kind of lead justices to uh, maybe a little bit tailor their their legal uh, conclusions and, and reasoning um, towards that more policy focused uh, consideration. I, I do. I mean, I do. I think. I think it. 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 It, it just. Um, it makes sense from a practical point of view to to let people who know what they're doing and who are experts in technology and the law, you know, these PTAB judges, do their jobs. And uh, as as long as there are no, you know, um, 
over due process concerns. Um, and, and, you know, the appeals to the federal circuit are, are, uh, acting as a check on any unfair, um, uh, rules that are, that are being put in place to disadvantage one side or the other. I think, I think, I think, uh, it would, it would be, um, very difficult for the Supreme Court to append that system. And, you know, the impact really would be, um, felt especially by, you know, as I said, uh, by companies that face, um, patent litigation where they may not have the resources to challenge a patent in, in federal district court, go through all the amount of discovery that you need to go through, you know, in, in regular district court litigation to ultimately wind up in front of a jury and say, you know, we have this document and it shows the patent is invalid because there's prior art. Um, it, it would be, I mean, I realize there are constitutional concerns and I, I'm actually, uh, you know, th- these are not, these, these are not contrived positions. There, it, it, there is, there is, there is a feeling you can understand why the idea that you're taking cases out of the district court and, and putting, putting perhaps the most important part of it in a, in a regulatory agency, you can see why that might be seem, might seem unfair, but I think ultimately the patent office issues thousands of patents a year it makes thousands of mistakes and they should be given a chance to correct those mistakes okay i will we'll find out soon enough if the supreme court agrees um that view uh, but for now we'll leave it there ben davidson of the davidson law group in los angeles thanks so much for being generous with your time and, and walking us through these uh, uh complex issues appreciate it thank you brian thank you pleasure And with that, our program for December 1st, 2017 is complete. Thanks very much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm Brian Cardow. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.